0: This is section fifteen, volume one, book two, chapter seven of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Greenman. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Chapter seven, Our Paladin in His Glory we were doomed to suffer tedious waits and delays and we settled ourselves down to our fate and bore it with a dreary patience counting the slow hours and the dull days and hoping for a turn when god should please to send it the paladin was the only exception that is to say he was the only one who was happy and had no heavy times this was partly owing to the satisfaction he got out of his clothes he bought them at second hand a spanish cavalier's complete suit wide-brimmed hat with flowing plumes lace collar and cuffs faded velvet doublet and trunks short cloak hung from the shoulder funnel-topped buskins long rapier and all that a graceful and picturesque costume and the paladin's great frame was the right place to hang it for effect he wore it when off duty and when he swaggered by with one hand resting on the hilt of his rapier and twirling his new moustache with the other, everybody stopped to look and admire, and well they might, for he was a fine and stately contrast to the small French gentleman of the day squeezed into the trivial French costume of the time. He was King B. of the little village that snuggled under the shelter of the frowning towers and bastions of Cordray Castle, and acknowledged lord of the tap-room of the inn. When he opened his mouth there he got a hearing, those simple artisans and peasants listened with deep and wondering interest for he was a traveler and had seen the world all of it that lay between chinon and domremy at any rate and that was a wide stretch more of it than they might ever hope to see and he had been in battle and knew how to paint its shock and struggle its perils and surprises with an art that was all his own he was cock of that walk hero of that hostelry he drew custom as honey draw flies so he was the pet of the innkeeper and of his wife and daughter and they were his obliged and willing servants most people who have the narrative gift that great and rare endowment have with it the defect of telling their choice things over the same way every time and this injures them and causes them to sound stale and wearisome after several repetitions but it was not so with the paladin whose art was of a finer sort. It was more stirring and interesting to hear him tell about a battle the tenth time than it was the first time, because he did not tell it twice the same way, but always made a new battle of it and a better one, with more casualties on the enemy's side each time, and more general wreck and disaster all around, and more widows and orphans and suffering in the neighborhood where it happened. He could not tell his battles apart himself, except by their names and by the time he had told one of them ten times it had grown so that there wasn't room enough in france for it any more but was lapping over the edges but up to that point the audience would not allow him to substitute a new battle knowing that the old ones were the best and sure to improve as long as france could hold them and so instead of saying to him as they would have said to another give us something fresh we are fatigued with that old thing they would say with one voice and with a strong interest tell about the surprise at beaulieu again tell it three or four times that is a compliment which few narrative experts have heard in their lifetime at first when the paladin heard us tell about the glories of the royal audience he was broken-hearted because he was not taken with us to it next his talk was full of what he would have done if he had been there and within two days he was telling what he did do when he was there his mill was fairly started now and could be trusted to take care of its affair within three nights afterward all his battles were taking a rest for already his worshippers in the tap-room were so infatuated with the great tale of the royal audience that they would have nothing else and so besotted with it were they that they would have cried if they could not have gotten it noel ringuisson hid himself and heard it and came and told me and after that we went together to listen, bribing the inn hostess to let us have her little private parlor where we could stand at the wickets in the door and see and hear. The tap-room was large, yet had a snug and cozy look, with its inviting little tables and chairs scattered irregularly over its red-brick floor, and its great fire flaming and crackling in the wide chimney. It was a comfortable place to be in on such chilly and blustering March nights as these, and a goodly company had taken shelter there, and were sipping their wine in contentment, and gossiping one with another in a neighborly way, while they waited for the historian. The host, the hostess, and their pretty daughter were flying here and there and yonder, among the tables, and doing their best to keep up with the orders. The room was about forty feet square, and a space or aisle down the center of it had been kept vacant and reserved for the paladin's needs. At the end of it was a platform ten or twelve feet wide, with a big chair and a small table on it and three steps leading up to it among the wine-sippers were many familiar faces the cobbler the farrier the blacksmith the wheelwright the armorer the maltster the weaver the baker the miller's man with his dusty coat and so on and conscious and important as a matter of course was the barber-surgeon for he is that in all villages as he has to pull everybody's teeth and purge and bleed all the grown people once a month to keep their health sound he knows everybody and by constant contact with all sorts of folk becomes a master of etiquette and manners and a conversationalist of large facility there were plenty of carriers drovers and their sort and journeymen artisans when the paladin presently came sauntering indolently in he was received with a cheer and the barber hustled forward and greeted him with several low and most graceful and courtly bows also taking his hand and touching his lips to it then he called in a loud voice for a stoup of wine for the paladin and when the host's daughter brought it up on the platform and dropped her courtesy and departed the barber called after her and told her to add the wine to his score this won him ejaculations of approval which pleased him very much and made his little rat eyes shine and such applause is right and proper for when we do a liberal and gallant thing it is but natural that we should wish to see notice taken of it the barber called upon the people to rise and drink the paladin's health and they did it with alacrity and affectionate heartiness clashing their metal flagons together with a simultaneous crash and heightening the effect with a resounding cheer It was a fine thing to see how that young swashbuckler had made himself so popular in a strange land in so little a while, and without other helps to his advancement than just his tongue, and the talent to use it given him by God, a talent which was but one talent in the beginning, but was now become ten through husbandry, and the increment and usufruct that do naturally follow that, and reward it as by a law. The people sat down and began to hammer on the tables with their flagons and call for the king's audience, the king's audience, the king's audience. The paladin stood there in one of his best attitudes, with his plumed great hat tipped over to the left, the folds of his short cloak drooping from his shoulder, and the one hand resting upon the hilt of his rapier, and the other lifting his beaker. As the noise died down, he made a stately sort of a bow, which he had picked up somewhere, then fetched his beaker with a sweep to his lips, and tilted his head back and drained it to the bottom. The barber jumped for it and set it upon the paladin's table. Then the paladin began to walk up and down his platform with a great deal of dignity and quite at his ease. And as he walked he talked, and every little while stopped and stood facing his house, and so standing continued his talk. We went three nights in succession. It was plain that there was a charm about the performance that was apart from the mere interest which attaches to lying. It was presently discoverable that this charm lay in the paladin's sincerity. He was not lying consciously, he believed what he was saying. To him his initial statements were facts, and whenever he enlarged a statement the enlargement became a fact too he put his heart into his extravagant narrative just as a poet puts his heart into a heroic fiction and his earnestness disarmed criticism disarmed it as far as he himself was concerned nobody believed his narrative but all believed that he believed it he made his enlargements without flourish without emphasis and so casually that often one failed to notice that a change had been made he spoke of the governor of vaucouleurs the first night simply as the governor of Vaucouleurs. He spoke of him the second night as his uncle, the governor of Vaucouleurs. The third night he was his father. He did not seem to know that he was making these extraordinary changes. They dropped from his lips in a quite natural and effortless way. By his first night's account, the governor merely attached him to the maid's military escort in a general and unofficial way. The second night his uncle, the governor, sent him with the maid as lieutenant of her rear guard the third night his father the governor put the whole command made and all in his special charge the first night the governor spoke of him as a youth without name or ancestry but destined to achieve both the second night his uncle the governor spoke of him as the latest and worthiest lineal descendant of the chiefest and noblest of the twelve paladins of charlemagne the third night he spoke of him as the lineal descendant of the whole dozen in three nights he promoted the count of vendome from a fresh acquaintance to a schoolmate and then brother-in-law at the king's audience everything grew in the same way first the four silver trumpets were twelve then thirty-five and finally ninety-six and by that time he had thrown in so many drums and cymbals that he had to lengthen the hall from five hundred feet to nine hundred to accommodate them under his hand the people present multiplied in the same large way the first two nights he contented himself with merely describing and exaggerating the chief dramatic incident of the audience but the third night he added illustration to description he throned the barber in his own high chair to represent the sham king then he told how the court watched the maid with intense interest and suppressed merriment expecting to see her fooled by the deception and get herself swept permanently out of credit by the storm of scornful laughter which would follow he worked this scene up till he got his house in a burning fever of excitement and anticipation then came his climax turning to the barber he said but mark you what she did she gazed steadfastly upon that sham's villain face as i now gaze upon yours this being her noble and simple attitude just as i stand now then turned she thus to me and stretching her arm out so and pointing with her finger she said in that firm calm tone which she was used to use in directing the conduct of a battle pluck me this false knave from the throne i striding forward as i do now took him by the collar and lifted him out and held him aloft thus as if he had been but a child the house rose shouting stamping and banging with their flagons and went fairly mad over this magnificent exhibition of strength and there was not the shadow of a laugh anywhere though the spectacle of the limp but proud barber hanging there in the air like a puppy held by the scruff of its neck was a thing that had nothing of solemnity about it then i set him down upon his feet thus being minded to get him by a better hold and heave him out of the window which she bid me forbear so by that error he escaped with his life then she turned her about and viewed the throng with those eyes of hers which are the clear shining windows whence her immortal wisdom looketh out upon the world resolving its falsities and coming at the kernel of truth that is hid within them and presently they fell upon a young man modestly clothed and him she proclaimed for what he truly was saying i am thy servant thou art the king then all were astonished and a great shout went up the whole six thousand joining in it so that the walls rocked with the volume and the tumult of it he made a fine and picturesque thing of the march out from the audience augmenting the glories of it to the last limit of the impossibilities then he took from his finger and held up a brass nut from a bolt-head which the head ostler at the castle had given him that morning and made his conclusion thus then the king dismissed the maid most graciously as indeed was her desert and turning to me said take this signet ring son of the paladins and command me with it in your day of need and look you said he touching my temple preserve this brain france has use for it and look well to its casket also for i foresee that it will be hooped with a ducal coronet one day i took the ring and knelt and kissed his hand saying sire where glory calls there will i be found where danger and death are thickest that is my native air when france and the throne need help well i say nothing for i am not of the talking sort let my deeds speak for me it is all i ask so ended the most fortunate and memorable episode so big with future weal for the crown and the nation and unto god be the thanks rise fill your flagons now to france and the king drink they emptied them to the bottom then burst into cheers and huzzas and kept it up as much as two minutes, the paladin standing at stately ease the while, and smiling benignantly from his platform. End of chapter 7